0: Things. Yeah, you We know, have a couple of right. that come in and out. Right. And We're out, still
1: trying. We're directed still by Luke Worm. We're still trying to <laughs> make it better.
0: I'm and really hoping. It's soon. It's really going to be soon. I swear to God. I swear I've almost I'm, I'm like this close. I'm this close. Again, directed, directed by, by Luke
1: from... Worm. <laughs> Welcome, welcome. Welcome, nerds and nerdettes. Welcome, obscurios of all shapes and flavors. You're listening to the The Nerd Nerd Obscurial Podcast. Hi, I'm Eric. And the Oklahoma Kid knows exactly what you need. Oh, I thought you were gonna say he knows exactly what you did. Get the rhyme scheme in there. That would have been nice. We are deep episodes here. I don't even know anymore Oklahoma. We at seven, eight, six. where we gotta be past five, right? Also, it's what's nice about the episodes, and why I think we keep going towards them again is that, like, it is about, well, just break the rules. Like, <laughs> we have this podcast, but these are all the stuff that we, we don't want to put in the podcast. And we're just having a lot of fun and spending a lot of time doing all the stuff that we shouldn't be doing. So I, I like that it's pretty much half and half. I wouldn't doubt if the episodes maybe even at some time uh, overtake the regular podcast, whatever the fuck that is. Right.
0: Depends how how much you
1: can come up with lists. It's what's enjoyable about this thing in the first place is that we're just uh we're playing with the form and we're having a good time playing with the form, you know. It is something I always I don't like to call it question authority, but like I do naturally want to be like, well, what about this angle? What about this thing? What about like I always you know, whenever there's a system that I see, I always want to be like, OK, how can we take it, tweak it and bucket, figure a way around it and not even a way around it. Just look at it in a different way to make it better almost because we're trying to do better here. Right. Trying to see it from 360 degrees rather than just from the front angle.
0: Being flexible, you know, like for like, hey, there's a thing that'll work out this way. We shouldn't feel like, oh, well, we can't do that because it won't fit the format that we already did. You know, I mean,
1: it's a nice way of thinking about it, I guess is the complimentary way to say it. But a lot of people would call it being a contrarian, <laughs> you know, just always having to go from the opposite angle just to, uh, well, I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, yeah, you're talking yeah. about like always
0: playing devil's advocate kind of thing. Well, well, way. it's i guess and like, yeah some people are like a lot of times i people. think
1: that i'm doing this one thing of trying to be flexible and see it from different angles and you know not see the forest from the trees but a lot of people would see it as being a contrarian <laughs> just saying like well no that's wrong because of this you know <laughs> I don't know if any of that's usable. Probably I, I do is. I think there's probably enough there for an intro at least. I think
0: we got an intro in there.
1: Right. Why don't we take a moment and then we'll be back with a segment. Theologians don't know nothing about my soul. They don't know.
0: So, you wanted to name this segment after the uh, Wilco song, Theologians Don't Know Nothing. Is that the full title of the song? I thought that was just the the title of the song is
1: Theologians, but my title that I insist on is Theologians Don't Know Nothing.
0: Which is the line.
1: Which is a line from from the the song, song. but not the name of the song itself. Yeah. And I guess uh, as maybe you'll discover and know that this is just our own interpretation of the universe, we're not trying to slag anybody else off and hurt anybody you believe what you want to believe i guess personally one of my big pet peeves with a lot of organized religions that i don't care what you believe why do you care so much what i believe like you know i don't need to be saved from hell or whatever you're the one that told me about hell why would i need to be saved from it it's a thing you just told me about you know um uh, but this is just our opinion. I hope it doesn't uh, upset anybody else or offend anybody else. Anything else you want to say to lead into this segment, or?
0: Oh yeah, I was just gonna say yeah. I mean, as long as you are being respectful of uh, the people around you, then you you go ahead and believe whatever whatever you want to believe. Uh, if it's not about Cthulhu, it's wrong. But go ahead and keep believing it. You know, man. You do you do your thing as long as you're not out there hurting people.
1: Well, I do have a strong belief that everyone is pretty much right. And that's my big problem, is that, like, the fault of religion is that it's always, this is the text. This is the way. This is the only way to do it. If you don't follow this one, then you're wrong and you're damned. And that's not exclusive to Christianity, that's all. We're just more sensitive as Americans with the Christianity thing. But, uh, frankly, my thing is that I I see it in all of them, like all all of the holy texts have teachings that are leading towards salvation, leading towards a divine um, interpretation. And I don't get the exclusivity. I don't get why, if I'm a Christian, there's nothing I can learn from the Koran. Or if I'm a Buddhist, there's nothing I can learn from the Bible. Or if I'm a, I think all of them, I'm a pantheist. I think they're all right. I'll simultaneously be all wrong. <laughs> That's my perspective on the existence of world. I already talked to you about uh, Rain Wilson, the idea of being Baha'i. Because of that spiritual variance that Baha'i offers, he's also a meditator. He's in the meditation because, you know, like the Buddha, they, they follow these other... So Tom Papa, who was interviewing him, has been doing a TM, Transcendental Meditation, for a long time. And so, you know, they start getting into the idea of meditation. And so they start getting into this conversation about meditation, and they both meditate, and... um. Tom Papa, though, he's, like, Catholic, so, like, he has a different relationship between meditation and praying. And he asked Graydon Wilson about his, and he says, Meditation is listening, but prayer is asking. Asking, you know, the divine force to help you with this, to move on with this and do that kind of stuff. And I think this is where I am spiritually and religiously right now, is that my first thing when hearing that, meditation is listening, but prayer is asking. I've always had this thing where, like, I wanted to be a meditator. You know, I wanted to be able to meditate. That is something I do strive for, and I think it's something maybe missing in my life. Prayer, though, and the prayer is asking. I did have this real thing in my head where it's like, no, we're orphans. Orphans can ask all they want to, but they're not getting anything. Like, we we don't have that father, mother, whatever it may be, figure that's going to come down and help us. Like, We're here, we're doing our thing. And maybe at the end of the day, I'm proven wrong and I find out there was something else there. But everything that I have come to understand, we're on our own, it's the great chaos theory. Everything is just up to us. I do believe like, and it's been funny how many times I've brought up the words Prime Mover. <laughs> but I do believe that whatever the Big Bang can prove, it doesn't prove what lit the match. There is some kind of divine force out there. But, but it doesn't do not, care about us. It does not give two shits. It is not here looking after us and wanting us. We are orphans. God bless it. That's the other thing. Everyone's scared. Oh, we're orphans. That means... No, 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 no. That's beautiful. This is great. Like... We're here. We fucking beat all the odds. No one wanted us here. (laughs) Nothing wanted this life and existence here. And we're here and we're fucking, we're having a time. And we're, this, this is happening. This is happening. All we can really prove is our own perspective. And when we die, it's probably just going to be a fucking black. It's gonna be fade to black probably would it be awesome if it's a fucking heaven afterlife whatever maybe yeah why not but what we know is that we're here now and all that other shit is fucking speculation so i don't i like the idea of meditation i like the idea of listening i don't like the idea of asking because i don't i don't i don't think there's someone out there wanting to listen it's just us I think there's, I guess, like, and it's something that I think we all fight as humans, but it's not only that, like, the seeking of the order is that we want to be right. And I think that's where religion and all that fucks up. Like, I I was struck because I took some classes on um, Indian religious arts, Mm -hmm. and they were talking about, uh, I I believe it was Sanchi, the stupid Sanchi, but I can't remember exactly where, but... um, they were were t- There was this British reporter talking to these, you know, uh, native Indian pilgrims going to this religious site. It struck me the fact that that even the Buddhists were supposed to be more progressive. They were like, "Oh well, you know, yeah, you seem pretty together and know what you're doing, but if you come back again, maybe you'll be Indian and then maybe you'll get closer to Nirvana." There was even like. Uh, the fact that you're a white Englishman also puts you back in your uh, quest. Because the idea of Buddhism is that it's a spokes on a wheel, right? And the, the closer you get to the center, then the less you're actually moving around the wheel, right. and the closer you are to nirvana. Mm-hmm. So they're talking about like how his set of circumstances also made him that way. But then... Let's just talk about religion. The funny thing is is that like maybe I I see there's a frailty in their argument by having that idea, but also at the same extent, when I see a Buddhist guru who is white, I do not trust it. You know. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, you know if you find a, a yoga master in particular who's like super white, I guess, yeah, it's just complex (laughs) it's one of those things it's at at what extent it's like truth should just be truth right but on the other side yeah that white buddhist could be speaking all the truth in the world and i'm just gonna have in the back of my mind like you fucking poser (laughs) you fucking (laughs) appropriating motherfucker i do think that that there needs to be that scrutiny though too because i think one thing proven through time is that people are going to take advantage of other people's faith and that, like, it's, for me in particular, I, I can't square, and it's why I can't be really bound to a religion. Whatever I find value in the teachings of Christ, I can't square the fact that these followers of Christ listened to and read about his struggles with the Pharisees, and then go to these mega churches it's like no that's exactly what he was talking about like he was exactly talking about these people that you go and put all your money into for their fucking billion dollar fucking foundation and church and all these jet private jets and all this kind of stuff i think that it's one of the proving factors of my skepticism of any religion is the fact that it's really easy to make a buck And it's really easy to dupe these motherfuckers. It's really easy to not be talking about spiritual progress or like spiritual um, existence. What it means for our lot here in life, the way that me and you are trying to talk. Mm. It's really easy just to say, I got all the answers and I'm gonna get rich off of it so here's the fucking collection plate. You know what I mean? There are things that from all these religions that they are teaching that are on that track of, yes, that will give you that salvation. Right. And I've actually, it's one of those old meander, uh, was the guy who said, uh, being human, you must suffer human things. Always loved that quote, but I do want to recognize like suffer human things. Like we we're still here in this life and we still like, we have these knee jerks, whatever it may be. That you feel about life and the afterlife, and we may have that common thread of like it's beyond us, all that kind of stuff. When you're caught in a situation, we're all making that call into God. <laughs> we're all, you know, well, we're we know we're fucked. I, I always loved, um, always telling you Philadelphia. I did a whole episode where, like, eventually they were going on this cruise. Eventually, they all got put in the brig, and then the fucking sick the ship started to sink and the water started to rise up on them and they all found god by the time they were treading water you know it was all like mac you know god you can talk to him help us out here you know like we're in our very fucking worst we all find god we all make those prayers we're all asking at that point and i don't think i'm above that either i think you know if I'm in that, uh, like that Australian who got caught in the rocks and had to cut his own arm out, if I'm there, I'm asking for God. I'm like, anything, come here, fucking help me, right? But it's like, when you're at that point, you're, I described it as, you're bargaining and suffering relief. Like, that's, that's when you're finding God. That's when you're asking for God. We all get to that point, but we all don't want to suffer so we're just bargaining for suffer relief whatever those situations may be wherever we may find the fact that we're praying we're just bargaining just just make this go away i don't want this to happen anymore right there's that moment that always happens though. Even though we don't believe in religion, we have that thing. It's this um it's almost like this medulla oblongata part of our brain that will go into that prayer mode cuz we're bargaining. We just we want it to happen. We all when we get into like this situation that happened with always in philadelphia you get into this steel box of a brig and the water starts rising we're all having those thoughts we're all having those bargaining thoughts and like prayer serves that function because we want to be heard ultimately we want to be saved ultimately but people who aren't in that dire straits right people who are just Asking God for like giving them guidance or like not not in the total like fight or flight small part of our human brain kind of thing. My problem there is that like it sounds really weird but part of me is like I don't want to bother God. Like it feels weird to be like bothering him with these little problems I have. Like it's like seeing one of your idols but not meeting them. You want to tell them, like, how much it means to you to see them, like, how much they mean to you. But you don't want to give those weirdo fan creepy vibes. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) the thing with prayer for me is that, like, God, I think you're doing a great job, but I don't want to bother you on Sunday. Chips are down. We're all praying. We're all just bargaining. We're trying to get out of this. anything that will help. We would pray to any bean whatever morpheme we want to call it we would all be praying to it when we're just about to fucking meet our maker and or are, are desperate um but the people who pray pray like as a religious thing pray on sunday and do all that kind of stuff like god you got better things to do like it's such a selfish thing. Like how you can worry about my affairs and my life, how you're gonna change the things that I'm doing. Like the idea of this overseeing protective God who's really worried about what's happening with me is really gonna help me. We're orphans. Like I said, we're orphans. That that that's where the basis beyond my with my religious belief. Like not only are we orphans but like I don't want to bother God if I do know he's my dad like he's got a lot of other shit on his plate you know he's got not only all these other humanoids he's got entire species we think we're so fucking special the ocean is two-thirds of our fucking planet how many species are there that he's also taking care of if there is this divine force watching over stuff he should not be watching over me he i should not be bothering him with my bullshit he should be doing more important shit but the idea of asking god something if we can't even understand it then what the fuck am i doing asking it something if i don't have the capability to even broach the subject of what god is then why am I asking it anything, firstly? Like, how dare I? And then secondly, what I'm going to ask it about is so stupid and trivial in its fucking existence that it's insulting to ask them in the first place. So what am I doing, asking God? That's a terrible idea. I'd much rather meditate. I'd much rather look, just appreciate, of looking at nature and looking at, everything around me, looking at the things that I have been able to validate in my life, my wife, my child, I'd much rather marvel at that than try to ask it to be safe or to ask it to be saved or trying to bother it. But I do also believe that other side of like, we're desperate. If my kids got leukemia, I am going to be asking God so many things. I'm going to be trying everything I can. I will, I will sacrifice the goats or do whatever it is that the God wants me to do. I will do it, you know? And we all have that in us, too. So it's like the funny thing is I can't... It's hard to square, you know what I mean? It's hard to square those two things inside of me that I know... At my primordial lowest point that I'm there, but also I don't want to bother him. <laughs> you know, if there's a religious part of the brain on that side of it, it's like right next to the fight or flight. Right, like next to that thing of that very instinctual survival kind of thing, where that's 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 where we'll go to. And I'm saying, however, a-religious or pan-religious, whatever it may be, I think anybody, atheists included, always go to that place. Like, th- we're almost hardwired, where shit really goes down, we really think we're drowning or something like that, we're all putting that fucking message into God, you know what I mean? I had to put it out the caveat, though, because I don't feel 100% truthful if I just try to say, oh... I don't pray to God because I don't want to ask God anything like it's about 75, 80 percent of my truth. But I know that 15, 20 percent when I'm in that survival mode, like we all do that. Like it ain't also just me, everybody when they're in that, you know, 5 percent percentile of Fight or flight fucking survival situation. We're all doing that shit. You know what I mean? But I would say, just like day to day without those kind of extreme circumstances on me. Yeah, I'd like to believe I'm of that mindset that I don't want to pray to God because I don't want to bother Him, firstly. And then also, we're orphans. We're not, we're not, we're not children. We're not being sought after and looked after and. You know, we're not going to, no one's going to go back, you know, and play a game of catch with God. <laughs> this ain't happening, you know, <laughs> we're on our own. We just have to fucking do what we can in this world that we've been given. The God I describe, that he's kind of centered in all of these holy religious texts, that there's a force going through all that, but he's also not around. He's also not here to help us. And then that's just my opinion as well. Okay, welcome back. We we were looking for another segment. Oklahoma has suggested this for a long time. And Oklahoma is a good friend. I've really noticed... That all of the stuff on the Odyssey stuff is like stuff that I love. And he knows that he's going to get a lot of content out of me about. I I studied classics, classical literature, particularly fond of ancient Greek literature. Do you have a segment name for this? I've gone back and forth. Okay, Oklahoma. Why don't you, you... Throw out what this segment is going to be
0: called. It's all Greek to me.
1: It's all Greek to me, which actually is nice because I can kind of go all in then.
0: Hey, folks. Oklahoma Kid here jumping in. Once again, we have a segment where Eric the Troubadour was so excited to get into some fun stuff like morpheme conjugation and uh, tonal languages that We didn't really do a great job of setting up exactly what this segment's going to be. And also making another appearance on the podcast, Ms. Oklahoma. Looking lovely as always, my dear. Thank you. You look fabulous too. (laughs) What it is we're going to do here is we're going to read through and talk about the Iliad and the Odyssey, which are two of the oldest existing pieces of Western culture's literature. Ms. Oklahoma wants pizza. Yes, dear? <laughs> I was going to order. Can I order? Go for it. In here? No. Nope. Okay. We will not be ordering pizza on the air. Now, some of you might have heard the names. Some of you might not. We're not really sure how much they're really getting read these days by people who are not super lit nerdy. Now, if you're super duper lit and nerdy, even more so than Eric the Troubadour and I, the Oklahoma kid, I'll warn you right now, this is going to be the layman's version this is going to be the uh, wikipedia edition explanation and backstory so there might be things where you're going to say well actually if you really get into the scholarship or if you really know blah 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 this is the quick version for people who don't know what the fuck the iliad even is so we'll start with the iliad and the odyssey is kind of a sequel to that but we'll get into that when we get there the iliad is a poem but not really a poem the way we think of poems some of you might recognize its subject a little better when I tell you it's it's about the Trojan War. In fact, the title right there, the Iliad, literally just means the poem about Troy, is the title. Ilios being a, another name that was used in ancient Greece for Troy. Now, it was written in, written, of course, being a tricky term, with this, with any ancient literature, but it was written sometime more or less around the 8th century BC. So we're talking almost 3,000 years ago. Now, that's also a general kind of, and it's debated. Some people think it was earlier, some people think it was a little later, but that's kind of the most accepted date by the people in, in the know, It's and it's Greek so ancient it was written in ancient Greek by ancient Greeks somewhere between 25 and 2500 and 3000 years ago. Now, you know, this was back before free verse poetry, a long time before free verse poetry and experimental and blank meter and everything. So this is written in like a strict meter and all of that type of stuff, very very formulaic. And it is an epic poem. So it is Not short the way we think of poems being short little things. This is a full book size. This thing is the size of a novel. And it tells a story during the Trojan War. When I say the poem was written, this is to say... This is when it's generally thought of that it was written down. But the thing you have to know about this poem is... We're talking about a time where most people don't write and don't read... This poem and most most things that the common people would enjoy, how they would consume it is this was something that would, a poet would come to your town, uh, traveling poets, and perform it
1: but uh, the thing about an oral tradition that to me is both interesting but also undependable and it wraps up everything in it you had mentioned that there were poets going town to town it was actually um, they were called rhapsodes and they were essentially actors and famously um plato has in one of his dialogues uh his dialogues always named after the person he's talking to so it's io io was the name of the rhapsode going from town to town reciting homer through you know the typical socratic Method of you know I O answering all of these questions that Socrates would have, and then Socrates kindly. Finally, getting drawn out of him what his opinion is of the whole thing of the use of his art yeah, as a rhapsode. The analogy he makes, which I, has always stuck with me, it's a pretty brilliant analogy, is that it's like steel rings and a magnet. The divine force is the magnet. Whatever this story that creates all of this. Understanding and uh, anything that we would call religious or something like that. That is the magnet at its core, and it goes through all of these steel rings and these different bodies right it first has to be transferred through whatever whatever authorship we would call like at that time and so that first one and has the most magnetism the most pressure to hold everything beyond it is the person making the art your homer your author whoever that is and then the next ring would be the one presenting the art to the audienceship your your rhapsode, your performer, the one that's getting have. it to the masses, but then the audience itself is the last ring in that uh, line <laughs> even though you know the science understanding was pretty limited. The idea of magnetism was still grasped by Socrates and kind of understanding that there happens to be certain, he wouldn't put it in this terms, obviously, but there's like these electrons going through everything and they have to reach all the way to one and all the way back to the other. But particularly when you think about the Greek sensibility, you think about the um, oracle at Delphi, who's basically just speaking this gibberish because she's inhaling these caustic chemicals we know now the divine is speaking through them is what they saw it as like the gods were speaking through them that Apollo who was the patron of the temple of Delphi was speaking through them I think in later on when we talk about the beginning lines of the Iliad we talk about the middle voice a little bit and it's that kind of feeling that you're there and present, but your agency isn't exactly passive, but it sure isn't active. You're, you're sure not in control. Like Homer wasn't in control of the words and the how important what he was saying. Like there wasn't this master plan big thing, especially that link gets weaker when you come to the performer. The rap isn't in control of this. This isn't where how many great understandings on consciousness and divine interpretations of what we actually are here on our earth, all these, d- these answers to these big questions, it's not coming from the rap. So it's not coming from the performer. And by the time it gets to the audience, it's definitely not seated there. It, it's seated at the the magnet, the magnetism that's drawing all four of them together. So, um, the question of authorship itself, whether this was Homer or not within that interpretation of what the text of Homer is and what someone although not a direct source Socrates is a lot closer than we are to him and he obviously knew a lot more about Homer than we ever would i feel like i'll trust that secondary source that it was homer if socrates and Euripides and Aeschylus and you know even people before Homer, but after them, if they all say it's Homer, then that's the name we're gonna give to it. And names are just names, you know. There, it could have been a real guy, sure. Maybe it wasn't. But what he was doing there by writing the Iliad and the Odyssey, I tend to agree with Socrates of like he himself didn't know what was being written. Whoever was writing it didn't really know what the fuck they were doing as well. Like I was loved out of. Um, Cause I I'm a mean, huge Bob Dylan fan and he would have these interviews or like, okay, what does this song mean? What's that song? Mean? He's like, I don't know. It just came to me and wrote it down. Like he just sang it, you know, so there isn't this thing of when someone makes this really influential, important art, the artist himself has a lot of difficulty explaining where it came from. You know, it just feels like you're being, taken over by the gods or whatever it may be called that's how they saw it back then at least and i think to this day we still say that because every rapper is always like i want to first thank god like there is this feeling and humility in every artist where it's like even if their their whole art is being big and boisterous that's why i mentioned rappers because that's their whole thing is about having that pride and not trying to be humble it is something where you don't know where it comes from you don't know why it's there it just kind of Lightning in a bottle came out of you and influenced all these people and made this big, huge deal. Maybe there isn't so much agency. So there was a story point that you had mentioned in your uh, table setting. And it's something that I kind of wanted to go into later. But if we're going to kind of bring the cat out of the bag, then uh, I'll make a comment about it here so, there's, there's kind of a double-sided correction I want to make here. First, I think you said it was 10 years that um, the Trojan War was into. Nine was the number because there was an oracle who um, basically, there, there was a snake in the nest of some bird there were nine eggs in the clutch. And so it was supposed to be a signifier that after nine years is what happened. I think they're at actually eight and a half or something like that. There's still, you know, quite a few months. Something that's important um, for, I think the context um, to tie it in with, and this is the stuff that I kind of wanted to talk about because it happens in the book itself, but with Briseis. Briseis is the name of what's technically called the trophy, but the slave girl. So this, this is the real, um, catalyst for the fight between Agamemnon and Achilles. There has to be though, kind of understood about the situation They're They're in year eight of the Trojan war. Briseis and her, Town that was looted before going to Troy. That's when, you know, all of these spoils, you know, hey, we got this big army. Let's fucking steal everything. This happened before they got to Troy. Then there's been another eight years. He was. 12 or 13 when he left his his home he was young so this is like most of his life that this has been his thing but the other part of it though which i didn't appreciate about the adaptation they did with uh, brad pitt as achilles troy there there was a closer affection and what we would as modern viewers see as love between Achilles and Patroclus than Briseis and Patroclus And Achilles, I mean. But um, it, it was like a status thing. It was basically like Agamemnon just took my Bentley. Uh, more than a love-love relationship, kind of. But it's, no, it was a captive. It was a slave. That's not to be questioned. It's just, it's a little bit more complicated than just saying it's like a Bentley, but there's a, there's a status thing about it as well, but also like this isn't the way that they try to portray it in Troy. This isn't like a boy meets girl relationship, you know, it's, it's a lot more status than what we consider love. There's a poignant scene where Agamemnon is arguing to the rest of the Greeks because Achilles is one of the first to pipe up and say, well, fucking, if we pissed off this um, priest of Apollo, crisis. But there's a poignant scene where he's trying to say, because, of course, Agamemnon's going to get, like, the best of the loot. And so he's trying to, like, make this argument of, like... Well fucking she's just as good as my wife you know she's my she's my wife away from home you know like it's she's not uglier, she's not dumber. Um, and a very big thing for the Greeks was their ability at the loom and he specifically says oh she's she's really good at the loom she's really good at weaving shit you know like that's a that was a big value point of femininity for the greeks and he brings up all those things of like why it wasn't fair that he had to lose his his trophy and i think trophy is the best way at least for me mentally to kind of it it sucks and yes objectification get it but it's a uh, It's easier for me than some of the other ways that try to explain it because it gets a little convoluted in our interpretations of stuff. That itself, because of that speech and how he describes Criseus, it, it sets a precedent for what those relationships can be like. That it can be like your wife away from home, you know, that even probably within the slave communities, which that culture was pretty slave driven, they would have had this other place of status than what maybe, you know, the one that's cleaning up your horseshit. So, um yeah, it's it's a complex uh thing that I felt like it needs a lot of context in both like for us to understand what the culture of that time was like and then also to kind of not give our own modern biases I guess is the best way of saying it on how things are classified and how things were it, it would be like talking about like your car like oh my baby you know it's closer to something like that um yeah and then the, the the length of the time that they were together and then the significance of you know like Agamemnon was like middle-aged uh but yeah Achilles was young He was young when he left. And then another thing, Achilles came from a land called Phthia. That was his island. That's where uh, Peleus was king, who was his father. Phthia literally means to wither in Greek. And so it's always one of those things where, because uh, Thetis is a goddess, and there's also a whole reason why Thetis married peleus a mortal because zeus was uh sniffing around thetis you know and there was a prophecy that the child of thetis was going to outpower the father and so if zeus got down with that then that would be another god war and no one was looking forward to that after what Zeus had to deal with with um, Roman Saturn. um, Cronus. Yeah, there is a deal that happens later on in the Iliad where basically when Patroclus takes Achilles' armor out to the battlefield and Hector ends up killing Patroclus, they also strip the armor. Stripping the armor was like a big deal. Your gear was everything. You know, your kit was everything. And uh, this actual pretty long scenes in the iliad about people fighting over a fallen soldier's armor you know trying to make sure it doesn't and then also the bodies when the arm was stripped from patroclus after hector had killed him thetis goes to jupiter and then jupiter has a build a new set of armor and there's a whole very you know for classicists at least famous scene about the construction of the shield of achilles the the armor and the shield of achilles all that was a barter because of um, thetis have to kind of happen to object herself to have a child with a mortal rather than with zeus um, and zeus kind of made that happen to make sure that prophecy wouldn't happen But then also the reason why, obviously, Zeus had this tender spot and why he got, you know, the treatment and the sticks. And actually, if I remember correctly, that is another secondary source part of the story. So Paris... Alexander is his other name. He has two names in the Iliad. Him is shooting him through the heel. It's another secondary source thing. It's not talked about in the in the Iliad, definitely. The Odyssey, I don't think it's mentioned. If it is, it's like really in passing. They're, they're, that's part of the story isn't you know, really talked about too much. There's some weird, interesting shit where like, Achilles apparently had a son named Neoptolemus. And he was old enough by the end of the war to actually join the battle and the fight. And then also, it's like towards the end of the Trojan War, there was a uh, fighter for the Trojans, kind of like the the equivalent of Hector, because obviously Hector got killed by Achilles, so they needed a new great champion named a uh, Black Nem- Memnon. And there's some like fight stuff between those two. But none of that's actually in The Iliad or The Odyssey. That's all secondary source. Just interesting story stuff. So that gives some context behind Achilles, Perseus. I guess I do want to, if I, if I had to kind of put some other thing out there for table setting, I think it's really easy to see that, like, you know, this is the story about Agamemnon and Achilles. And... There's, you know, some stuff with Menelaus, because that's the reason they're there, and obviously Odysseus is going to show up and stuff like that. But, like, there was also... This is, like, um... Remember the NBA Dream Team? You had Jordan. You had Magic Johnson. You had, like, the best of the best going against these other people. And they just fucking... You know. But this was the feeling, uh, definitely, with the Iliad. And, like, there's a lot of time given to, like... Ajax. Well, there's two Ajaxes, <laughs> but particularly a big Ajax, whose story further progresses that he they're fighting after Achilles dies. And gets shot through the the leg they're fighting over his armor you know we talked earlier how big about armor is and stuff like that No, actually they're not fighting they're doing the um the funeral games and this is actually attested to in the the odyssey not these particular funeral games but uh, the the funeral games of hector or or Patroclus, you know happen we assume they happened with hector side as well the first instance of um boxing pugilism that was in the first funeral games uh, of antiquity and they would do all these feats of strength and there was this uh foot race that they would do um for the funeral games and Ajax was gonna win but Odysseus like hopped over like a corner, you know, he's the one that's always got all the the plans and you know, outsmart people and stuff. He hopped over like a corner kind of thing and then ended up winning the foot race just by like a hair behind Ajax. Ajax got really sore about all that. <laughs> he felt like Odysseus cheated him and that he was Cause he was also like the strongest he was that was achilles thing he was strong he was fast he was the creme de la creme he was jordan so who's going to replace jordan and ajax felt like he was the rightful one to that distraught by his loss he has his own little sub story where he ends up going like crazy and it's one of those things of like divine influence like madness comes down and storms him and he ends up going out and killing all of the cattle thinking that they're other Achaean soldiers particularly going to try to kill Odysseus because he'd been wronged so much and uh, I mean it's featured well in tragedy so of course he kills himself at the end Tragedy goes. <laughs> but um, each one of these guys out there had subplots. They had side stories. They had other things going on. These were like the best warriors, warrior princes of all the area. And they all got their special time. And actually, what's funny is that the second book of the Iliad, it's called the... Um, the list of ships i believe and it's literally just naming about where every ship is from that came to this trojan war and the thing it reminds me of is the um it's not it's not i like that old time rock and roll but like that same kind of general genre Huey lewis Huey lewis has a song where he'll like mention all the different towns that there's a song that he does like that and that's what it reminds me of it's just like your name and all the towns you could possibly go into, and every time like your town gets mentioned, you're like, yeah, <laughs> they mentioned our town, man, far out. <laughs> um, and that's what the Book of Ships <laughs> is about: a list of ships. But that is important because they would take it from town to town. Oh, I did want to mention that uh, Menelaus is from Sparta, actually. That's his kingdom.
0: Now, so the shooting in the leg thing. Is not in the Iliad. But, like, I remember it being pretty clear in the Iliad that it's, like... It's very clear that he's going to die.
1: Yeah. And that's why I mentioned about the Fathia thing earlier. There's the idea of that, like, you could either stay here and fight and get infinite glory and be remembered for all time and have someone in the year 2022 be talking about you or you can go home and you can wither away at your farm and never be heard of again and have no one have any idea what the fuck you were and uh it was a very big thing with the characterization of Achilles it was very much so that what he was struggling with when he decided to stop fighting because of his quarrel with Agamemnon and to watch the trojans start kicking their ass and be there on the sidelines that's the thing he was quarreling with we talked about how the word wrath was the first word of the story ultimately it wasn't like the decision was made for him it was because of the death of patroclus that his wrath, he just became unhinged. And, you know, there's points when when he's going, like, full-bore Al Gore. He's just fucking to the hilt, just going crazy on the Trojans. Because of all of his death and destruction, there's a fire that started, and it starts going into, like, tributary, a little river or something next to it. And then it starts to become in the demigod world again, and they're like what the fuck dude (laughs) like you're destroying everything around here like you know he starts uh pissing off demigods and starts really getting so nuts that like even more divine forces than the mortals are starting to make points about that wrath over consuming like a fire a fire was the best analogy for it but it was like the fire on top of the river that's how hot it burned kind of thing that it was how it's described is that it's like a um like an oil fire that there's literally flames coming off of the water itself this kind of supernatural kind of fury and especially Thetis being like a nymph and her having her own demigod kind of correlation and that connection with Achilles. It's just an interesting interweaving, I always thought. His his wrath was actually the reason. Like, I think it was always still kind of undecided in the intellectual Achilles self on what to do there. And that he had this, like, support from his mother, Thetis. who was like... It reminded me a lot, actually, of what they did with Superman. It, you know, there's this moment that he's talking to... Diane Lane and she's like you don't owe these people anything this is all paraphrasing but it's kind of like the gist of what she's talking about in this scene it's like you don't have to do this you don't you don't need to be that guy you can go and be happy somewhere else and you can just run away from all this and you, these, you don't owe these people anything because you're the one that has to actually live. This is your life. And I think that's what the representation of like Fathia was, was that like it's like that's the wither point of the name of the glory, which was a lot bigger then than it is now. But um, it represented a chance just to keep being human and keep living and doing all those things. And even though he had that kind of immortal shell because of the river sticks and all that, it was prophesized and very poignant within the story that, no, you're you're gonna die on this thing. Now, of course. I have trouble with the idea that there's a lot of history in this, that these were actual people, that Homer was an actual person. Like, it, it, it makes better lore than anything, you know? If you had to justify Ajax and Odysseus and Achilles and all these things being re- real people, like, if it was a real thing going on, it wouldn't be nearly as good of the story as we got. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I doubt Else there is intricate with their Bad stories of demigods and all that, that kind of person. stuff if it's there's a real thing. I guess the reason why I was metal, disappointed old, with Brad Pitt metal. as Achilles, you Troy know, like movie stuff, exactly Eric Bana was pretty fucking good you know, as Hector. I'm going to give some props and there. And this Hector friend, is a really so interesting character. Different stuff so I was glad is, to see that was well that. done. But um, pissed, draw this out of the you've got to keep a lot of the fantastic if you want to be true to the story, the Homer story, you know, the original story.
0: So now that we've gone through all that, I think that's that. That kind of sets us up. At least you should have a general idea of what it is uh, we're talking about here. So uh, back to the show. So, so
1: it's really hard for me to figure out where I'm supposed to start here
0: because the there's form.
1: so many places to go to. I got a translation over here by Richard Lattimore,
0: and have you read other versions? Like other, other people's translations. Well, of course. Would you say this is the best one? Oh. In your opinion. Yeah, okay,
1: this, this would be the thing that I was going to say about this. So we, we've talked several times before about he's a comedian's comedian. Richard Lattimore is a translator's translation. It's it's something that like he is super skilled at getting down actually what Homer was doing and making it make sense in English. Does that correspond to what people who don't know the original language or don't try towards the translation stuff? Is it as potent to them? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it's easier to see it in some other ways. And actually, I had. Uh,
0: Fagels is the one I read.
1: Yeah, Fagels. Fagels is a lot more accessible. Fagels is good too. It's like he's not a, um, a no name, he's no slouch. Yeah, he's no slouch, that's exactly what it is. He is no slouch, and that's a very good uh, translation. This is how I want to do it. I want you to look up a version where it's like, okay, that that seems like the first line of the Iliad, and then I'll get into my thing.
0: You found from quite a hoity-toity author. So when I just typed it into Google, the first thing that'll show up for you is the free ebook version uh, of the public domain, I guess. Alexander Pope, yeah, who is
1: outright, uh, yeah, a great poet in his own right, yeah, author.
0: So this is how uh, his version starts: Achilles' wrath to Greece, the direful spring of woes, unnumbered heavenly goddesses sing. Um, like I said, I I believe Fagels was the one I read, and it's been a while, but it, the way he phrased it was more or less. Sing to me, O oh, muses, the wrath of Achilles. Yeah,
1: Jove is where our sentence ends. I, yeah, at least, I, how I'm understanding it. It isn't really where it ends. Oh, because well, there's, well, there's two there's more. An
0: there's an exclamation mark, so I thought that was the end of the sentence. No. Okay.
1: Not in the original Greek.
0: Uh, okay. Oh well, yeah. So the 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 exclamation mark was an editorial. Yeah. Decision on there's Pope's part. There's a lot, Mart-
1: of, and actually. You, I've told you. Let that- me ask
0: you real quick, though. Let me ask you one real quick question. How long do you think it is before someone publishes a translation of the Iliad that uses emojis in the text? How far away are we from?
1: I would be surprised if there isn't already that in existence. But actually, I'm going to have you read this. Uh, this is a Richard Lattimore. Why don't you try the Richard Lattimore? Why don't you try to recite that line and, and, and let me know if this rings true for you.
0: Sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus' son Achilles and its devastation, which puts pains thousandfold upon the Achaeans, Hurled in their multitudes to the house of Hades, strong souls of heroes, but gave their bodies to be the delicate feasting of dogs, of all birds, and the will of Zeus was accomplished since that time when first there stood in division of conflict Atreus' son, the lord of men, and brilliant Achilles.
1: What did you think of that interpretation of that beginning line?
0: I think that is a perfect piece of evidence to present for your argument. Probably very accurate and a tiny bit clunky.
1: Right. But was it so clunky that it brought you out of it? Like, no. You didn't. Okay.
0: It seemed to me like he was capturing a little more of the formalization that goes with like the oral tradition aspect yes. of the poem, and I think and we're maybe get they like that a lot more. I think maybe they tone that down a little in other translations, so people aren't like, "Why does he keep saying the thing the same thing over and over again?" Because people won't really think about the cultural context of it.
1: I may make myself a fool, but I feel like I just need to go for it. And I feel like we're gonna. Here is the original Greek from the Alan Rogers Benner version. Manine de thea peliadeus <laughs> aculeus ulomenen Hymuria Kaios alia theken polas Diabmitus diptimus sukas aidi poepsian heroon utos de haloria teuke Canesun oioseti tidae ta Dios te alatu bule exudeta prota diateten erestante atadeus te anax andron caidaius achilleus.
0: Wait, real quick, can I ask? Sure. Why do you speak Greek with a uh, French Guiana accent?
1: Okay, so there is an interesting thing if we're going to go down this thing about pronunciation and all this kind of stuff. There is the knowledge that this was recited town to town. I'm going to make myself a fool, and I'm only into the first line here. But from what we know, a strong argument behind this idea that the, actually you have a tone tone. Part of it in the way that uh, Mandarin is a tonal language that you can do different tones of the same syllable and it will mean different things.
0: Right. right?
1: How it would sound tonally. And like I said, I feel weird and like I'm uh, a vampire. I want to suck your blood. Blah. <laughs> you know. I do not know how accurate or historical that would be, but tonally, that would match closer to maybe what a Greek citizen in a town... It wouldn't necessarily be those
0: tones, but it would be something in that ballpark in terms of, this is what that sounds like with tones.
1: So, unfortunately... I feel like the first thing we're going to have to go through is some grammar.
0: Great way to kick it off.
1: It's a great way. I have so much to talk about grammar. (laughs) Um, So, the big thing, the important thing, is um, in order to really understand the text, is to understand that syntax doesn't fucking matter at all, because they have what's called a declension. Every noun every adjective every pronoun relative whatever 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 demonstrative whatever pronoun you want to give they all have a separate what's called declension it's it's essentially a conjugation and it dictates what function it is doing in the sentence we still have this system intact when it comes to our personal pronouns
0: i me yeah whether it's the subject or the object so that still is and that goes for like everything
1: in the greek it goes bigger than that so those are two examples you have the object or the subject right there's five there's the nominative which would be the subject right there's the accusative which is kind of like the object after a verb there's the genitive which is like the object of a preposition that has to do with possession. So, um, the ace of spades, there's the dative, which would be, um, an indirect object. So I gave Susie my money. Susie is the dative. Susie is the indirect object. The money is the direct object. I is the subject. Gave is the action verb. And then there's the ablative. (laughs) And uh, we'll just not concern ourselves with that right now. It's way too confusing. There isn't a, a good general structure. There's no ablatives in this first sentence. So, we don't even have to deal with that right now. Just take it out of your fucking mind. It's there. We need to know about it, but it's, it, we don't have to worry about it. That's about declensions. Why I'm talking about all this, why this matters, why you went through this great fucking grammar nonsense with me, it liberates the author to put a sentence in any fucking form they want to do it in. Syntax makes no difference at all. Typically, actually this is a great demonstration, right? Typically, you would have to have an adjective be right next to its noun. The first line and first word of the second line of the Iliad. Mani, the first word of the Iliad. The first word of the second line, ulomenen. Those are attached to each other. You had four words in between those, But those are the two that are connected to each other. It's important to understand this because Lattimore said, Sing goddess the wrath. Pope, the wrath of Achilles. Sing goddess. The first word is wrath. We go through four words and then ulomenen. The word that connects with wrath.
0: Which means? Destructive. Mm.
1: The destructive wrath. But in between those two... You get, Goddess sing the destructive wrath of Peleus' son Achilles. If that you're trying to make as literal as possible, that's that first line. Goddess, sing- but the first word is wrath. And this is the other thing that's important. First words matter, wrath sets a tone. The Iliad is about an addiction to hate, and wrath is the first word. And then on the second line, it's terrible. And you can just just listen. I thought you said
0: it was destructive.
1: Destructive. Destructive. Terrible. You know, like, um, but just listen to, like, how it flows together. Mani naeretheia peleideus achileus ulomenen. Like the way that, manin ulomenen. When you connect those two phonemes together. There's something, moving back to the oral tradition, like this was supposed to be spoken out loud, and that's why I keep on saying it, even though I'm mispronouncing so many words. It's supposed to be spoken out loud. Those two words together and the coupling of them. When you say wrath, you have all these words, and then ulomenen, there's like this lightning striking, seeing the flash, and then hearing the thunder. Yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, you, you just there's no way to translate that proper proper. Like there's for me at least, always it was always this word. It was like when it was said, like there was a weight that you heard behind that word. Like there was this thing where it's like, oh shit! Like in this whole, it just got real. This whole sentence is that it just got real. Like things are fucked. Well. I mean, spoiler alert, doesn't end well for a whole lot of people. So, there's there's a lot. <laughs> it's so hard. I don't know where to pick my fucking lane here. Like, I totally want to go, like, total nerd. <laughs> Just be like, every word, let's talk about every word going on here. Let's, like, get into it, man. And then there's also, like, oh, my God, nobody gives a fuck. The first line, those first words, okay, I do want to say something important. So, manning is the first word, wrath, Wrath. really important. And the whole story is about Achilles' wrath. Yeah. And it's actually a lesson about wrath. It's a lesson about hatred. It's a lesson about, um, let's just go word for word. (laughs) Okay, so wrath, very important. Terrible. That's connected. Those two things are with each other. Aida thea. That's the the two next words after Aida is the second person imperative sing. Okay. You're telling somebody
0: to sing. To sing, yes. Hey, you sing.
1: Hey, you sing. Thea being the subject of who should be singing, goddess. But what's important here? This is the singular. This isn't plural. So plural would mean muses. All you muses sing. In the original Greek, it's just goddess. Singular. You have to assume he's talking to Calliope, which would be the muse of heroic poetry. Heroic and epic poetry. Yeah. Peleadeus Achilleus. Epithets are super important to the Greeks. Peleadeus means son of Peleus who put countless suffering Achaeans and the many strong souls of strong heroes sent to Achilles. Heimuriakaios atheken. Athaken. That verb in particular. Oh, shit. It's an Aorist. Ah, fuck. We have to go do that, too. Okay. Do you want grammar? Or do you want content? Which, which do you need right now? Okay, the grammar is this, a thaken is a third-person singular, aorist. This is the interesting thing about aorist. It is a subsect of the past. You got the future, you got the present, you got the past. You can make a verb conjugation into all of those things. The aorist is a part of the past, but not a part that we ever use here in English. So you have the perfect, you know, I did something. You have the imperfect, I was doing something. The aorist, what it reminds me a lot of is the middle voice, a thaken. So the idea is that um Achilles, hey, mui Achaos, like he sent countless scents though, it's like placed, right? But this is actually what's really interesting about Athaken and the, the choice of that word. That word actually shows up more often than not as like a deposit placed as a bet. Right. There's a gambling thing there, too, or like a bank deposit kind of thing, too. Right. So, but there's this feeling of like a down payment. And it's just interesting where, if you think about it, by using that verb in particular, because there's a lot of verbs when it comes to placing, putting down, sending to. By using that one in particular, there is kind of a vibe of like Achilles was paying a debt and the Dedekians were that debt, you know, like his wrath. Everything that happened, this was the deposit. This was the debt being paid for or what happens in the rest of the story that you're about to hear. I always found that word in particular very fascinating why it was used there. Okay, so, Paulus, I did say heroon. It's the strong souls of heroes who were sent to Hades. There's also an interesting thing there, too, that it says Achaeans. Yeah, but so that's, that's, not talking that's about the common thing of of it, is that they're, they're called Achaeans. And like I said, Danaans, D-A-N-A-A-N-S. I know I pronounced that incorrectly, but those are the Trojans. Right. Most times they're called that. They aren't called Greeks and Trojans. But it's
0: interesting. It says the souls of Achaeans sent, he's an Achaean. So this first sentence is interesting because it's talking about, talk about that it, it's saying, you know, hey, goddess, Tell the story about how Achilles' destructive rage sent all these soldiers on his side to the the afterlife. Yeah. It's like it's yeah. not even talking about like, here's this guy who's this badass soldier, but this really isn't about the people he killed. It's about the people no, he got killed. No, but it's important. It's important
1: though. That that is astute. And it's very important because, because of the diostatun say, strife and that's is like separate, so like they're separated by strife. And then the last line is son of Atreus, Agamemnon, king of men, right? And dios, uh, godlike, is the interpretation, God dang, yeah, because dios is shorthand for dear to Zeus, Achilles, Achilles, so your last line is, you know, the son of Atreus, the king of man, obviously Agamemnon, and God like Achilles, but separated with strife, the words right before that, but what's interesting, two lines above that, Dios de bole, the will of of God accomplished is the most direct easy way to explain that sense but right before they talk about this is actually all about agamemnon in Achilles fighting and all the people that had to die for that. They said, like Zeus wanted it in the first place. It was, it was ordained. It wasn't actually either there's really fault. Like this is what Zeus had in the cards in the first place. And you yeah. don't question the gods. One more thing before that line that I did want to point out. Autus teloria, taekus, Kineosun. Teuku was like uh, to dress or prepare a meal so he's talking about all the fucking greek heroes that are dying and it's basically talking about like how it's dressing for a meal how it's like prepping it to be served up as a as a booty as a uh treasure for the dogs and carrion birds and the thing that's like important to keep there is that like that was the worst thing you could do to a warrior if you're a warrior you died in a great fucking battle with someone who is equal to you and fucking you just you came up short. You, you had bad luck with you whatever it may be. You died there and then you got a fucking funeral pyre and you had, you know, people collect up your bones and a monument to you. Exactly.
0: You were a grunt you were left on the field to get eaten by vultures. No, even worse.
1: You were thrown over... Raped c-
0: by John Mayer?
1: You were thrown over the city walls and eaten by dogs and carrion. But I do like the fact that it's, it's the idea of... Um, he sent them... The Achilles, personally, sent them to be... He, he sent them dressed like he was a chef. <laughs> Sending them over the, into the realm... Where dogs and uh, birds would pick their flesh. There's like an agency there. But then right after that is just what Zeus wanted. You know what I mean? <laughs> like just how Zeus. We're getting into content now. We're Zeus out of... is into
0: some weird shit.
1: Well, it's it's just a funny thing where it's putting all this agency on Achilles at first, but then also getting him off the hook. And it's like, oh man, shit went down, fucking all this stuff. And that's, that's what Zeus wanted. I would say if there are two words that define the Iliad, Mining, Wrath, because there's, there's shit where, like, Achilles is burning rivers. <laughs> like, he goes fucking hog wild. And then Ares, Aranste, as it's put in here, Strife. These are the two major themes. And both of those words are in that first sentence. And, like, you get a road map. But one of the things I really did enjoy, if we just want to go like, you know, kind of off book and not talk about actually what's happening in the words here. I found so enjoyable about going back and reading Greek was that like, I would just get lost. That one sentence was a labyrinth in itself. And there is something about like, the declension system and having the different, you could put in any order. Syntax means fucking nothing. It doesn't mean shit because you have the end of the word. That morpheme is gonna tell you what's going on. So you could have this entire sentence And you can have the first word and the last word connect with each other. And it's going to make sense, even though they're that far separated. You can have 10 lines in between your fucking adjective and your noun. It was very fun for me, I just want to say at the end here. To kind of go back, it's very, I get a lot of pleasure out of going through these texts. Because for me, it is, it's is—it's definitely like a puzzle you're putting together. But also, it's like looking at the forest from the trees, like you need to look at each word, how all of it comes together. Like how that line, like thinking about the oral tradition of it, that actually there was like... 500 years that passed between the idea of it being there and it actually be putting down on papyrus that we have an actual evidence of this is how it was. So like, or oh, yeah. 500 years? <laughs> we can barely think about the last 10 years. How long that is? How much things could have gone through change? How oh, yeah. important the oral tradition was to actually get it there in the first place but then and also, how much it probably corrupted it.
0: Why don't we take a moment? Soup's on, people. The Nerd Obscurial Podcast is a Gadzooks and Nerd production. That's Gadzooks, G-A-D-Z-O-O-K-S. Find us on the web at gadzooksandnerd.com slash meow, yes meow, M-E-O-W. If you liked the music, you can find more at gadzooksandnerd.com slash fields, that's fields, F-I-E-L-D-S. The Nerd Obscurial Podcast and its contents are, except for the Steal This Joke Joke, the wholly owned and copyrighted property of Gadzooks and Nerd, so don't go stealing any of it, except, of course, for the Steal This Joke Joke, or we'll have to stick big pretzel on you. Any works, products, content. Concepts ...or otherwise intellectual property not owned by Gadzooks and Nerd, mentioned or discussed in the Nerd Obscurial podcast... ...are done so under fair use for the purposes of commentary, critique, and obviously comedy. So please don't sue us, because we can't actually sick big pretzel on anyone. The views, ideas, opinions, and beliefs expressed in the Nerd Obscurial podcast... ...are solely those of its creator and your esteemed host, Eric the Troubadour... ...and do not represent the views, opinions, or beliefs of any individual or entity named... ...referenced or alluded to in this podcast, including but not limited to... ...Rain Wilson, Leonard Nimoy, The Wizarding World of Harry Potter and its parent companies... Buggles, me, the Oklahoma Kid, Brad Pitt and his parent companies, Alexander Pope, Bob Dylan, my wife and her parent companies, the great state of Oklahoma, and of course, all cats everywhere on the internet. Hail Cthulhu.